Uh, as we continue in our worship, can we open up our Bibles to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 9? Last week, we took a short break uh, through the plagues. Pastor Jimmy, cared, uh, Jimmy came and shared uh, from Christ Central about trusting in God. And so we're going to jump right in uh, to our series. Now, just kind of to give a background, the Israelites have been enslaved um, uh, under Pharaoh and in Egypt for 400-plus years. And uh, the Israelites were crying out to God, uh, please save us. And God heard the cry of his people. Uh, and what he did, he commissioned Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And we know how the story goes. Pharaoh refused uh, to let his people go. And so God supernaturally sent uh, these plagues to break the will of Pharaoh uh, and to ultimately free uh, his people. Uh, and so we learn about the first four plagues uh, these amazing acts of God. Uh, now we're going to jump into literally the middle of uh, the plagues, in plagues five and six. And what you're going to notice is a slight level of intensity and severity in the plagues, uh, in the plagues to come. And so let's give our full attention as I read God's holy word for us, starting at verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, and the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord said, uh, the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take, take handful of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall, be, it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord has spoken to Moses. This is God's word. Amen. You know, as we're going through these plagues, there's so many lessons that we can learn uh, through each plague that God sends. But one stood out to me as I was reflecting and, and, and reading these accounts over and or, over again. It's simply this. Change is hard. Change is so hard to come about. Pharaoh's hardened heart, his unwillingness to give in is, is a sober reminder of how we are as individuals, how we're so hard to change our minds and to change our hearts. Right? So change doesn't come easy. Often it takes an extreme circumstance or a situation for us to even slightly change, let alone to change the heart of a man or the mind of a man or a woman. Change is extremely hard, and that's one of the most important lessons I feel like we get from looking at this interaction between God and Pharaoh. So the struggle continues. The mission of God is to change. The mission of God, it is to change you and me. 
One of the central themes, if we look in Exodus, and actually if we look in the entirety of Scripture, is this idea that God wants to change. It is recreation that God is after. He wants to recreate us. And that tells us something about creation. Now, if you go back to Genesis, we see that God created everything, and everything was good. Right? And when he created Adam and Eve, he said it was very good. There was peace, harmony, fellowship, communion in the garden where man and woman can walk alongside God and everything, to be, everything was good. But we know that didn't, that didn't last very long. God gave them one command, do not eat of the forbidden fruit right, or you will die. Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve and they eat the fruit. Right? They ate the fruit. They disobeyed God. And this one act of sin, which was treason, which was rebellion, they were saying basically, God, I no longer need you in my life. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to govern and rule my own life. And that one act of sin ruined all of creation. It twisted and warped God's original intent for creation. And because of this act of sin, humanity will experience a threefold alienation. Threefold alienation. The first type of alienation is between humanity and creation. Creation will turn against us. Natural disasters, earthquakes, cancer, disease, death. That's the first type of alienation that sin causes. The second type is humanity with other humanity. Relationships, divorce. Envy, greed, right? fighting one another. We are alienated from one another. And we see that immediately after sin, Adam and Eve start blaming each other. And lastly, the most devastating alienation we experience, in which the first two are only symptomatic of, is our alienation from God. Upon sin, God casts them out of the garden, away from his presence. Sin caused us to be severed from God, the very source of life, of joy, of satisfaction. And we see all three types of alienation actually here in Egypt with God's people. God uses creation to turn against Pharaoh, sending all these plagues to punish him, to break his will. Secondly, we see alienation between Egypt, right? The Egyptians and the Israelites, they were oppressing them, abusing them. And lastly, we see God, God's people separated from him. In a foreign country with, filled with pagan gods, they weren't able to worship God as Yahweh. We see all three impacts of sin here in Egypt. And so God's plan is to recreate. And another way to say recreate is to redeem His plan is to redeem Israel from all three problems of sin. And it's it's been uh, proven to be quite difficult, right? This back and forth between uh, Pharaoh and and God. But yet God is going to redeem. And so three ideas I want to share in in regards to redemption. First is the purpose of redemption. Secondly, it's the prevention of redemption. And lastly, the power for redemption. The purpose, the prevention, and the power. So first, the purpose of redemption. See, the United Nations, if they were to observe what was happening here in Exodus, uh, they would not be happy. There are so many universal human rights that are being violated here. Right? Physical abuse, 
the mass killing of young boys, forced labor. And so the United Nations will make every effort to make the situation better, to free the slaves, to create a better environment for the Israelites. Because right? we, we can all agree that slavery is evil. Right? Any efforts to free men, women, and children from slavery is a good cause. And we can, we can buy into that. And the question I want us to consider is, uh, is the United Nations goals the same as God's goals? Is what the United Nations trying, what they're trying to do, is, this, is it the same thing that God is trying to do? And I want to say yes, in part. In part. Because God created all things. He created every one of us. He wants us to experience his goodness and his blessing. He wants us to have opportunities, right? Better circumstances, better life experiences. Yes, he wants that. But it's only in part. God has a far greater purpose in redeeming his people and redeeming us. And we find that in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. See, God's mission isn't simply to release slaves, but ultimately to reclaim what is his. Let my people go so that they may serve me. In other words, let the Israelites go so that they can worship and serve me. Simply put, God's ultimate purpose in redemption is himself. Let me say that again. God's ultimate purpose in redemption is his glory and himself. Now, some of us, we may have thrown up in our mouths a little bit. When we hear that, we, some of us, we cringe at that. Is God some kind of egomaniac that he needs people to worship him and serve him? Is he so desperate for attention that that's his ultimate purpose in redemption? Because we, we can't stand people like that, right? We can't stand people that want your life to revolve around them. They're all about themselves. They want you to affirm them. They want you to celebrate them. Right? We can't stand people like that. But if we're honest, we're all a little bit like that, right? We're so self-focused and self-absorbed. You know, as Asians, we're a little bit more passive and subtle about that. But we know people that are blatantly just about themselves, Right? If they're in this room, don't look at them, don't poke them, right? But we know people like that, and we can't stand being with them. We have people in our culture like that, right? The Kanye Wests, the Kardashians, right? We can't stand people that just wants to go viral or that's trending or you just want to retweet them and follow them. So the question is, right, is God another one of these obnoxious narcissists? that he would want to redeem so that these people can worship and serve him to make their lives about him. Now, whenever we hear things like this, I know a lot of us, we feel uncomfortable because what we want to do is we want to associate God with our human experiences and relationships. I know someone like this. So when we hear something like God's desire is for his own glory, or if we hear things like God is about himself, we're like, oh my gosh, I don't want that. Get me away. And see, the problem with that, though, is we can't place our experiences in, and project that upon God because God is not like us. God is infinite. He is eternal. He is the creator God. He is sovereign. He is love. He is perfect and holy. He's unlike our experiences. He's unlike anyone in this world. And so our, we, we, we got to uh, avoid the temptation to place God in the same category as our human experiences. 
He's altogether different than us. Now imagine this. What if God came to you and said, hey, make your life be about glorifying the Lakers. Make your life be about glorifying the Dodgers. Make your life be about glorifying your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, your children. Would that be a loving thing for God to do? No. You'd be disappointed. We don't know what the Dodgers season is going to look like at the end. Who knows what, what, what LeBron James is going to do, right, this, this upcoming year with the new, new additions. We don't know. There's no guarantee. And so for God to say, hey, make your life revolve around these things, your career, your success, your jobs, your academic would be unloving. Why? Because we have no guarantee that that's going to last. Because anything in this world, a created thing is temporary. It's fleeting. But now think about it. For God to say, hey, make your life be about him. Why is that loving? Because he doesn't change. He's eternal. He's the very source of comfort, life, and joy. He designed us for that. He created us for himself. See, God knows that we will find greater joy, lasting comfort, eternal peace if we're with him, if we make our lives about him. And this is why pastor, one of my favorite pastors and authors, John Piper, this is what he says, and I think he says it so perfectly. God's pursuit of his own glory is not at odds with your joy and my joy. And that means it is not unkind or unmerciful or unloving of him to seek his glory. In fact, it means that the more passionate God is for his own glory, the more passionate he is for my satisfaction in that glory. And therefore, God's God-centeredness and God's love soar together. Beautifully said. God's desire for his glory isn't self-serving. It's rather self-giving. Do you see that? For God to be about his glory is the most loving thing he can do. Because it is in him, right, we find life, joy, meaning, and purpose. See, release from slavery is just a part of redemption. It's not all of it. Redemption finds its ultimate end in God himself. And the thing is, by nature, we are all natural worshipers. There is a worship feature built in within us. And whatever we worship, we serve. We devote our lives to. We are enslaved to. See, the goal of redemption is not simply just release. It is to reclaim a people for himself, for us to be his children. So the goal of redemption, brothers and sisters and friends, is not just for you to improve your life circumstances. The goal of redemption is not so that God will fix a little thing here and there in your life. The goal of redemption is for us to be in God's presence for eternity. See, many of us, we, we, we became Christians because we wanted to avoid hell. We heard, we heard a scary sermon. And so like, hey, you place your faith in Jesus, you can go to heaven and avoid hell. And so we say this one prayer, and then, and then we, we get the ticket to heaven. And what a lot of us do, we hold on to that ticket. We live our lives the way that we want to live, just waiting to cash that ticket in. Brothers and sisters, that is not what redemption is. That is not Christianity. We have grossly misunderstood God. We have grossly misunderstood what redemption is, if that's how you're living your life. 
But yet, so many of us, we live that way. I got my ticket. I'm waiting to cash it in. I'm going to live it up until then. Question I want to ask, ask us is, do you serve God for redemption? Or do you serve God because of it? Do you serve God so that God will redeem you? Or do you serve God because he has redeemed you? This is the, this is the, the main difference between religion and Christianity. See, listen carefully. The Christian, in the Christian life, service follows freedom, not the other way around. And so God makes his intentions very clear from the start. It is worship. It is for us to be his people. But herein lies the challenge of redemption. Because in order for God to redeem us, he has to untether. He has to break us free from everything else we've attached ourselves to. And so this leads us to the prevention of redemption. Now, there are many reasons why Pharaoh resisted God's demand, but I'd like to share two of the greatest factors of what prevented Pharaoh from letting the people go. And if we look at these two preventative things that get in the way of our redemption, we're going to realize, man, I struggle with this still today. First is idolatry. What is an idol? An idol is a created thing that we look to for the meaning of life. It is the very thing that we look to to derive our sense of value and worth. Egypt worshipped Pharaoh as a god. Egypt was filled with idols. The god of the sun, god of the Nile River. What God is doing here, he's untethering. He's wanting to untether Israelites from the idols of the land. And he's actually giving a chance for Pharaoh to, to do the same. See, the plagues were a direct assault on the claims of Pharaoh of being God and all the gods of Egypt. Verse 2, once again, For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. There was a god named Hathor in Egypt. This was the Egyptian god of love and fertility, and this god was depicted by a cow. It symbolized the very source of life and sustenance for the people of Egypt. And upon God's word, all of the Egyptians' livestock died. Imagine that. Pharaoh, who is God, seeing the symbol of his gods all perishing around him. Imagine what that would have done to him. Right? God, through, this, through the fifth plague, demonstrated that he alone is a source of life. He exposes Pharaoh and Hathor as false gods, unable to produce life the way that he does. And so God destroys all the livestock of Egypt. See, Pharaoh's heart was hardened because of self-idolatry and the confidence that he had in all the gods of his nation. Now, if you look closely at, at, at idols, in essence, they're actually pretty good things. Right? Authority is not a bad thing as Pharaoh, as king, but if you look to that for your meaning of life, right, you derive your value and worth because of that authority, you made it into a god. See, pigs, or I mean not pigs, cows, they're not bad. Quite tasty, right? But if you look to a cow and you derive your sense of worth and value from a cow, you made it into a god. Idols aren't bad things. 
They're actually quite good things that we've raised to an ultimate thing and therefore becomes a God in our lives. See, although we don't erect statues in our rooms and bow down to them and sacrifice to them, we all have idols in our lives. We are all guilty of idolatry. Whether it's your children, whether it's your job, your careers, your academics, your relationships, we derive our meaning and worth from them, those things. And I want to tell you, we are guilty of idolatry. And that hardens our hearts towards God. See, idols blinded the eyes of Pharaoh and he hardened his heart. Pharaoh had confidence in himself as a god. And he had confidence in his gods of the land. And but through this play, God exposes both Pharaoh and his gods, saying that they're not enough. And whenever God exposes our idols, it comes in the most painful way. Right? It comes with disappointment and frustration because you realize it does not satisfy, it does not fulfill. And so even though it's painful, what God is doing here, he's, he's wanting to soften our hearts, to show us that he alone is a source of life. So he sent the plague. Pharaoh's heart still remained hardened. And this leads us to the second preventative obstacle for redemption, which were the Pharaoh's magicians. They were his trusted counselors, his spiritual leaders. Pharaoh relied on them in time of need. When Moses came and he, he turned his, his staff into a serpent, he asked the magicians, hey, can you do the same? The Nile into blood. Pharaoh did the same. Hey, the frogs, can you do that trick? The, the Pharaoh's magicians did the same. Pharaoh relied upon his magicians. So if the fifth plague exposed Pharaoh and the gods, the sixth plague was an attack on the religious system of Egypt. Verse 8, again, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take a handful of suit from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and it becomes boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. What was this? What was this disease. Now, there are a lot of speculations, but the most common suggestion is skin anthrax, which is a severe swelling and irritation of the skin. Egyptians were covered from head to toe with these open sores. They called them boils. And not only them, the beasts of the land. Right? This is a very significant miracle right, that God performs here because suit, ashes were used in the worship of the, the Egyptian gods. Magicians will take the very same ashes and throw them up in the air for blessings. So what God does here, he uses the religious system that symbolized blessing and he turned it into a curse. This was a very significant plague. What God is doing here is he's exposing the weakness of the religion of their land. And he defeats the magicians. Verse 11, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came, up, came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. God beat them at their own game. They couldn't even stand before Moses. Pharaoh's like, hey, come, 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 come. Can you do They were covered in boils themselves. And this is actually the last we ever hear of the magicians. He defeats the very religious system of Egypt. What is, God, what is God trying to teach us? Our abilities, even our greatest performances, are unable to achieve redemption. 
religious deeds and our morality cannot save us. It actually does the opposite. It perpetuates slavery. Because what does religion say? Hey, you can do it. Make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Make sure you're a good boy, good girl, and then God will save you. Religion teaches you that you can save yourself at the end of the day. And what the Bible says is that religion, religion perpetuates slavery. There is no freedom that we can get from religion. And this was the main problem of the religious elites in the Gospels, was it not? The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they didn't think they needed saving because they thought they were pretty good. God cannot redeem those that don't believe they're enslaved. And that's why Paul says this in Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, before Jesus came to redeem, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. See, Pharaoh trusted in his religious leaders and, his, and their abilities, which hardened his heart. And so with the sixth plague, God defeated religion. And all of God's attack and assault at, at this point has been directed to Pharaoh and Egypt, but I, we cannot forget who is there at Egypt witnessing all of this. It was, it was the Israelites. The Israelites were there for every single one of the plagues. Now, why is that important? Because what we're going to notice is the Israelites aren't that different from Pharaoh. They're going to be in the wilderness. You know what they're going to do? They're going to commit idolatry. They're going to trust in themselves. It should have taken 14 days or 11 days to get to the promised land. You know how long it took them? 40 years. It was an 11-day travel, and it took them 40 years. Why? Because they were just like Pharaoh, stiff-necked, forgetful, worshiping all sorts of gods. And so as much as this was a lesson, right, of of God teaching Pharaoh of his supremacy and of his rule and his sovereignty, he's wanting to teach and warn the Israelites, hey, this is who I am. Do not worship any other gods. I am the only one. Brothers and sisters, friends, I want to ask, what is getting in the way of your redemption? You might not be a Christian here. What is getting in the way of you experiencing the saving grace of Jesus? Another question I want to ask is, what is getting in the way of you living the redeemed life as a child of God. Is it idolatry? Could it be idolatry? A quick way to discover what your idol, what your idol might be, what is the most regular sacrifice you find in your life? What is the thing that you see yourself regularly sacrificing? If your idol is success, you will sacrifice your time with your family and children regularly. It might, even come, it might even come easy to sacrifice that because your goal is that promotion. Your goal is that income. If your idol is approval and you want everyone to like you, you will regularly sacrifice your integrity and honesty. You won't tell the truth. If your idol is comfort, you regularly sacrifice your responsibilities. What are the things that we are sacrificing and to what end? And then you, you can discover your idol. Maybe it's religion or self-righteousness that's getting in the way of your redemption. How do you know if you're living a religious life? Two things. Is your relationship with God filled with fear? Now, I'm not talking about reverence. I'm talking about fear. You're just hoping that you don't tick off God 
right? You, you want him to not curse you and he, you want him to bless you. If your life is riddled with fear in your faith, I want to say that's a clear sign that you're falling, you're, you're, you're actually practicing religion. The second clue, whether you're living the religious life, is are you entitled? You're like, God, hey, I'm coming to church. I read my Bible. I pray. So you come, come to God with open hands. Now give me something. Entitlement. If that's you, you're living the religious life, a self-righteous life. Because imagine, if you don't get that thing, what happens? You're like, oh, man, it's not working. God's not real. And you get disappointed. Fear and entitlement are clear signs that you're living a self-righteous, a religious life. See, brothers and sisters, change is really hard. There's so much in the way of us experience the redeemed life. Now imagine this, 400, 400 years of Egypt having these Israelites, it was their way of life. Pharaoh was worshipped as God. There was this history of tradition and culture for 400 years, and God has wanted to change all of that? 400 years of the Israelites living as slave people. 400 years, that was all they knew about themselves. Is redemption easy? Absolutely not. And we'll find that out as we continue in this series, that it's not easy. So then how is God going to do this? And this leads us to our last idea, the power for redemption. Verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses and the donkeys, the camels and the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing, that all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. The power of redemption is in the hand of God. It is not in your hand. It is not in my hand. It is in God's sovereign hand. The same power that we see God's hand punishing, Israel, uh, punishing Pharaoh will be the same hand that preserves Israel. Now why? Why would God do such a thing for a rebellious, idolatrous people? It's because God made a promise, an unconditional promise, because the Israelites, Israelites had nothing they possessed. They had no qualities that, that deserved their redemption because God loved us. He said, I need to recreate a people, and I'm going to choose the Israelites to do that with. They had nothing good about them. But yet God promised sovereignly to them that he's going to make him his people. The power of redemption is in the hand of God and in the promise of God, because God keeps every one of his promises. And so even though they rebel, he still carry, carries out the redemption, as we will see later on. Redemption is accomplished by the hand of God and his hand alone, where he single-handedly takes us and plucks us out to save us from slavery and to make us his people. This is why redemption is amazing, because it's, it's his act, his doing, not yours and I's. He does it alone. So the question for us is how can you and I experience redemption? For the Israelites, it was freedom from slavery and the promised land. How do we, how do you and I experience God's redeeming work today? See, Israel had Moses as God's messenger. In the Gospels, we have a better Moses. Not only a messenger, but the actual redeemer. He will give his life as a ransom for us to set us free and to make, his, make us his people See, the very hand of God that needed to crush you and me as sinners, on that cross, the very hand of God is raised against his own son, destroying him. 
Instead of Jesus executing justice on that cross, Jesus receives God's justice. The full weight of God's wrath is bearing down upon upon his son on that cross. The very wrath that we deserved. He was without sin. He was the righteous one. But yet, he would absorb all that for you and me so that we can be his people. He would take our punishment for us. And Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried, out, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that, was, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And in verse 11, he says it was God's will to crush his son so that we can be redeemed and free to worship him. If you're not a believer today and you're wondering about who Jesus is and why he had to die, I want to encourage you to look at the cross. He died for your sins. Because sins is, your sin is the greatest enemy against being with God. And he died for you. If that's you today, I want you to consider the cross. Consider the message of the gospel. And if, if you want to make the commitment, please come and see me or Pastor Paul. We'd love to pray with you. But for the rest of us, if you consider yourself a believer, the question I want to ask is, are you living as a child of God or are you still living as a slave? Are you, are you, are you giving yourself to these idols that are actually bearing down on you, suffocating you? Because whatever we worship, we have to serve. And all idols are, are horrible masters. They destroy our lives. If that's you, I want to call you to invite you to repent and believe in the gospel once again. For others of us, we see God as a taskmaster and not a father. I too want to call you to repent if that's you. We have misunderstood God in his heart. We did nothing to earn salvation and redemption. What that means is we can never lose it. So see him as a father. We share in Christ's inheritance, and that's not going to be taken away, no matter how good or bad we are. And that's good news. But if you're seeing God as a slave master, Repent of that as well. And rejoice in your redemption. Look to the cross constantly because we forget all the time. Even though we're free, we live as slaves. And my challenge to you is look to the cross. He purchased our redemption for us. And as we do so, we will see our lives transformed and changed for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing act uh, um, through these plagues, you're teaching us so much. Help us, Lord, to live as your redeemed people, not as slaves. And any idols that I have, any misunderstandings of seeing you as a slave master, God, I, I ask for your forgiveness. Help me to see you for who you are. You are a loving father that gives generously your only son as a ransom for us so that we can be set free and reconciled to you. Now, as we partake in communion today, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill us with joy and delight with strength and encouragement. We thank you, Lord, that you give us this amazing gift. May we do this as an act of worship to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.